Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Welcome to the third episode of Sacred Nine Project Regret, Repent, Rejoice. This is part three. Episode one offered a detailed look at the kinds of hymns found in the tune books like Southern Harmony. The episode went on to examine the problematic aspects of hymns that marginalize groups like African Americans and Native Americans. Episode 2 explored our particular tune book, Southern Harmony, its compiler, William Walker, its unconventional musical quirks, and the singing school movement that brought it about. Both of these episodes deal with history. Today's episode is The Here and Now. First, we will talk about the unique singing style. Then we will look at how the singing school, now called the Fasola movement, found its way from southern primitive Baptist churches, for example, to urban centers whose practitioners were not theologically aligned with the texts of our tune book or were perhaps not theologically minded at all. Finally, we will circle back to the kinds of troubling texts we talked about in episode one and find out how modern shape note singers address them. Today, the format will be a little different. The experts have so much important information to share that I'm going to set up various topics and just let you hear from them. Speaking of guests, at the beginning of the first episode, my guests introduced themselves. If you want to know their credentials, you can go back and listen to that part again. The first link in the show notes is a beautiful webpage I've created where all of the announcements from my guests and contributors are displayed in an organized and pleasing format. I did not put their information in the show notes. There was so much to share that the show notes looked very messy and uninviting. So please visit sacred9.com slash podguestnews and look for episodes one, two, and three. I promise it's worth the click. I have only participated in a few shape note singings and I was really lost at first. I was trained in college in the solfege system which gives a different syllable to each of the seven notes in the scale. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. As revealed last episode, there are only four shapes and therefore four syllables in shape note singing. Fa, sol, la, fa, sol, la, mi, fa. It's difficult to snap to four syllables when you are used to seven. Also, given my admiration for this practice and all that goes along with it, I must admit that I am jealous that shape note singing is not in my heritage. My aunt by marriage came from this tradition in rural Mississippi. They had a singing at her funeral. What a moving experience that must have been. Fasola practitioners or shape note singers are called a class. They sit in a so-called hollow square in which the basses and trebles face each other and the tenors and altos face each other. A leader, and often a different leader for each selection, guides the class. There may be a designated pitch giver for the singing, or an individual leader might pitch the tune. As such, unless the person has perfect pitch, the range of each selection may vary from singing to singing. The tenor line always carries the melody. What you will find if you look up singings on YouTube is that the class employs particular arm motions to keep the beat, and those patterns change based on whether you are in 4-4, 3-4, or another meter. For singing style, it's important to understand the difference between chest voice and head voice. Chest voice is sometimes referred to as natural voice. 
It's the register we generally speak in. However, if you know who Julia Child is, she's someone who spoke in both her chest and head voices. Bon appétit! Head voice, which some call falsetto, is the lighter voice that takes over when the chest voice can't go higher. When your voice cracks, that's what's happening. Your chest voice is saying, sorry, pal, I'm out. One feature of shape note singing style is a strident and loud delivery in the chest voice. The bass voice will always be in the chest because that part is generally not high enough for the head voice to need to take over. Male voices on the tenor will almost always sing in the chest regardless of how high the vocal line is. Altos seem really committed to taking the chest voice up as high as possible and then just a little bit higher. Trebles sing in chest or head depending on how high the part goes, as do female voices on the tenor line an octave up. I have played several clips of singings over the past two episodes. Let's listen to another one here and pay particular attention to the altos, that is, the prominent female voices you hear. Also, you won't hear a slowing down at the ends of verses or refrains as one normally would in church hymn singing. You'll hear that the beginnings of each verse are not so rhythmically coordinated. Finally, as is customary, the class starts by singing a verse on fa la and then sings the text. This is Present Joys, sung at the United Sacred Heart Convention, 
We really don't talk much about timbre in Sacred Harp pedagogy. What I hear singing teachers say at, at what we call singing schools is to sing with your speaking voice. And it's a kind of way of saying to not apply an, an affectation, which is most difficult for people who are trained choral singers. So there's something really unrestrained in that way. But at the same time, we make all these decisions that are, that are kind of about leaving something on the table. And there's a power in that, like that you don't take a third or fourth repeat or something. You don't clap your hands to the beat. You don't slow down in this dramatic way. You, you put everything into it. And yet there's, there's, I don't know, there's something about keeping it spare. And that leaves you with a kind of propulsive momentum that you can pick up in the next song. And it carries over. And it just, it leads to this kind of build over the course of an hour of singing before we take a break. And it, um, it leaves something on the table for the next time you come to that song, next weekend or in a couple of weeks or whenever you go to another singing. And I've heard this many times. I wish that had more verses or got to put a repeat in there. Um, but we don't. <laughs> you know, we're not going to sing all, uh, 12 verses of a song. We're going to sing two verses of a song. And it just works and it does create a kind of power. In this practice, there is no audience. It is not performative. Likewise, there are no critics. There is absolutely no objective to blend. Here is Stowe. It was perfect for me because I didn't have a trained voice. I didn't have a lot of bel canto techniques to unlearn. And it was a great crash course in how to sing out loud, to really focus on how to project, because, you know, immediately I realized, wow, everyone's into projecting here. His words, as well as my engagement with shape note singing, make me re-examine my career in music making. In the so-called classical realm of singing, I am always so obsessed with how I sound and how well my choirs are blending. And that is as it should be. Different styles of singing have different conventions. But it does make me wonder how many times I've compromised, even slightly, really authentic storytelling through music by giving too much priority to pristine sound. If you're not familiar with Sacred Harp singings, I invite you to fall down that rabbit hole on YouTube. Recently, I saw one in which a portly elderly man in suspenders is alongside a young guy with tats, an asymmetrical mullet, and dangly earrings each enjoying the other's company with this music and practice as the connective tissue. Shape note singing is no longer reserved for primitive Baptists and the like. That's due to the folk music revival of the 60s and 70s. Stowe offers an explanation as to why this widening of the circle is not really much of a stretch. I think that's the, the ethos that has been at work, maybe back to the early days of camp meetings when people would gather from the entire region and sing together out of these books. And some would be there for very much spiritual or religious reasons. Others would be there for a social gathering, to meet possible partners, to have fun, to you know get out of the small town. So I think that's been a part of it from the beginning. And once sacred harp singing was discovered or rediscovered by Northerners in Chicago and New England, really beginning in the 1970s, then I, I, I think they really put an emphasis on downplaying this as a 
distinctively Christian activity and, you know, presenting it as something that is fun and welcoming and open to anybody. Let's kick off our discussion about the folk revival with Fulton. The whole sort of transportation of Sacred Harp was a a function of the folk revival, basically. To some degree, starting with Poland Jackson and those kind of folks back in the 40s, early 50s, it became the kind of thing that was the source for a lot of Americanist choral arrangements and that kind of thing. But very, very distinctly accelerated sort of in the late 60s and 70s. That was the event that sort of precipitated Sacred Harp escaping containment. (laughs) Or the era, I should say, not not the singular event. And at that juncture, quite a few people who were quote-unquote traditional singers, made a very overt and strategic decision to be welcoming to new people, including those who didn't think of this as a religious practice at all, who were solely interested in the sound or in the experience of singing in groups. Getting on 70-some years later, it's gotten to the point that a lot of the quote-unquote new singings are completely self-sustaining. I did not know when I invited Steve Marini as guest that he was a pioneer in this area. He has a great deal of first-hand knowledge, so I'll get out of the way and let him tell you. I've been involved in it from pretty much the beginning. The link is the folk song revival of the 1960s. As people developed from the Kingston Trio through Peter, Paul, and Mary into really starting to dig in, then Southern Ballads, White Spirituals in the Southern Uplands, collections like that, People started tinkering around with them. And the Folkies had no religious or cultural links at all to primitive Baptists in Georgia. So they were inventing it on their own. We connected, finally, to the Southern singers. And that was because of a couple of adventurous New Englanders who wound wound up making connections down there. In my case, I taught for two years. My first job teaching was at Chapel Hill. And I taught there from 74 to 76. And a guy named Dan Patterson, who is who was, alas, um, the great expert on shaker music, he said, want to go on some field trips with the anthropology and folklore department? I said, sure, let's go. We went out and we heard black sacred harp. We heard white sacred harp. He said, we're going to have an event. I want you to come. And he brought... Sacred Harp singers from Cape Fear, the Piedmont, and from the mountains. He knew them all. They didn't know each other. Put them all together in this theater space in Chapel Hill. And he had the groups sing tunes that they knew, and everybody else listened. Then he would have another group sing the same tune, and it was different. And then we would all sing together at the end. So he said, it's variety. There's variety in this tradition. There always has been. And I went, how do I really find out about this? And he said, you need to go to Georgia and Alabama. Buell Cobb, C-O-B-B. Buell's the real deal. Buell took me all out, out to the Primitive Baptist churches for memorial singings. I learned it. Two years later, I brought it with me to Wellesley. I started a group of stu- with a group of students. Neely Bruce did the same thing at Wesleyan. And uh, 
folks up in Vermont did the same thing. So those became the three centers, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Vermont. We all did performing, and we all convened regular singings in traditional manner, and then we all got together once a year in a convention. So we wound up having conventions of north of 200 people in about four or five years. And that just, from then on, spread all over the place. Then Marini links the move toward more diverse shape note singers to the earlier discussion of singing style. What attracts contemporary, urban, and rural young singers to this music is a really interesting question. One of the most common answers over all this time has been the sound. The sound is, sounds quintessentially American. They are fascinated by the performance style of full voice, let it rip. They like the fact that it's a cappella. There's a purity to it, warts and all. They like the ornaments, which they're not used to. He goes on to mention the initial difference a non-traditional singer might feel at first when practicing shape note singing. If you go to a small church, you're surrounded by primitive Baptists, and you just go along. But when you go and have dinner on the grounds, you start talking to people. You understand that these people are singing their faith. He also explains how this welcoming of newcomers has been mutually beneficial. The traditional singers felt rescued, literally rescued, by the new singers in the 60s and 70s and 80s. This great infusion of thousands of new singers, because it spread all the way across the country, these new singings. And they rescued an elderly and failing generation. And some of the great singing families kind of stoked back up again. There's a mutual acceptance, and it's rooted in respect. By respecting and joining in that traditional activity, you become, in some substantive sense, part of the family. Here is that same singing from 
Still, the mixing of people from urban areas where politics are arguably more liberal with the original practitioners of this music who are largely more conservative make the controversial holdover hymns all the more controversial. Fulton mentions a few of these. There's not a song in the Sacred Heart that doesn't get sung. People sing Edmonds, people sing Stafford. There's controversy over it, but certainly people do sing them. Indian Convert is certainly one of the most popular songs out of uh, Southern Harmony. They sing it out of Christian Harmony, too. We covered Indian Convert in episode one. That text does not appear in modern Sacred Heart books. As she mentions, it is present in Southern Harmony and Christian Harmony, which was our own William Walker's stab at a seven-shape system. Fulton reports that some singers walk out when that tune is called. A handful of singers love the simplistic-sounding syllables it employs in the spurious Native American dialect. To them, those primitive syllables gave them, when they were children, a sense that they, too, could have a relationship with God. Two of the tunes Fulton mentions do still appear in Sacred Harp. Edmonds is about the creation of Eve and is quite sexist. Stafford has an anti-Semitic bent. See what a living stone the builders did refuse, yet God hath built his church thereon in spite of envious Jews. Few people could speak with as much nuance on this issue as Jesse Carlsberg. As a scholar of sacred music, there's an opportunity to engage there, right? Because there are all of these singing traditions, and we're talking about the Southern Harmony and the Sacred Harp, but you know, many of these are hymn texts that were not composed by these compilers, right? They were composed, some of them contemporaneously, others in the 18th century, so perhaps two generations earlier in the United Kingdom. And so we have texts that probably hit on the racist and colonial. There are some anti-Semitic texts. There's a, there's a whole range of, of texts that are hurtful to groups of people. You know, race and religion and coloniality are all dynamics at play in these books, and that animates the entire corpus in terms of being a part of its cultural context. There's a whole other set of answers to the question about what do you what do you do with them as participants in a contemporary music culture that sings out of books that are meaningful to us because of their longevity, that they not just date to the 19th century but have been sung from since the 19th century. This edition of the Sacred Harp represents the accrual, I guess, of revisions every 30 years or so, going back to the 19th century. And at different moments in that history, editors have removed songs and added in new songs and have made changes to the hymn text. Certainly, you compare the hymns in the contemporary editions of the Sacred Harp to those same hymns in contemporary denominational hymnals, and you can see that there are many fewer changes made. That the sorts of things that people have tried to edit out of hymns in denominational hymnal contexts seem to have been motivated by a whole range of of concerns. In some cases, I like what we have. (laughs) Like, we may have more vivid, impactful language in some cases that really can intensify our emotional experience. At the same time, we do still have language that could be hurtful to members of our community. And I don't feel good about that myself. At the same time, we've always been a kind of coalitional group. We've always been a group of people who don't 
ascribe to a particular theological position and who don't ascribe to a particular politics or worldview. He goes on to speak of the intricacies of this question, to participate or not to participate. I know people who I love who have sung hymn texts that I can't stomach. But I know people who have led them. And why have they led them? Well, maybe there's something else going on in that text that speaks to them from a theological or an emotional standpoint. Or maybe it has nothing to do with that. Maybe it was their grandmother's favorite song. So that doesn't make me okay with it being sung in my presence at that moment. But that's only one of a number of ways in which being a part of this community has led me to remember that I don't speak for everyone in this community when I have my perspective on a text, even when it's the text that I find the most difficult to, to stomach. There are a couple of them that I'm not myself willing to sing. I don't walk out of the room if someone calls it, but I'm not willing to sing it myself. Kiri Miller, ethnomusicologist at Brown, having done much field work with sacred harp singings, has much perspective about how to address hymns such as the Indian convert. Her writings on the subject come from conversations with sacred harp singers. Being aware of these songs can give a great history lesson on how far we have come in our shift of perception toward people of color. Also, one can arguably replace sacred harp with Southern harmony when Miller writes, quote, Sacred harp offers white Americans of whatever spiritual orientation the rhetorical means to address the marginality alienation, exile, and community through 18th century Christian poetry, when other folkish repertoires might feel less authentic in their mouths. For example, the slave songs, black vernacular spirituals, and multicultural freedom songs that have become folk revival staples, end quote. With absolutely no prompting from me, no fewer than one half of my guests compared the issue of these problematic holdover texts in Sacred Harp to the Confederate monuments in public places. Here is David Stowe. Well, what does that tell us that there were these Confederate monuments raised all around the South? What does it tell us that these people who founded universities or institutes had these toxic views? Talk about synchronicity. I had written a whole essay on exactly that topic that had been sitting on my website since 2018. Link in the show notes. Proponents of Confederate monuments argue that removing them erases our history. Opponents argue that it is unreasonable to ask an African American to walk past a veneration of Robert E. Lee on the way to work every day. They also assure the other side that they are not trying to erase anything. In fact, a museum is where the monuments belong so that they can be properly contextualized. In my view, our Southern Harmony can definitely be that museum. Sacred Harp can too, to a lesser degree, since many of the really troublesome texts have already been eliminated. However, perhaps it is a good thing that the latter tune book has never been completely sanitized. That way, engagement and discussion can emerge. Here is Marini again. You hope that such withholding would draw some attention. That somebody would ask you, why didn't you sing that? And now my great love letter to Southern Harmony and shape note singing is drawing to a close. Famed shape note singer David Lee says that sacred harp singing gives their community a format for loving each other. 
If you start to learn more about shape note singing, you'll see that the experience is much more than the sum of its vocal parts, simultaneously earthbound and otherworldly, both primitive and pioneering, rote as well as rhapsodic. What can you do but weep? Not because you necessarily believe the words, but because of the formidable energy created by that collective and unselfconscious practice, pure ethos, no artifice, just truth, a joyful noise indeed. One final recording from 1959, we hear the parting hand, which is the tune that usually, or maybe always, ends sacred harp singings. I leave you with a profound perspective from David Stowe. I like the, f- the feeling you just sort of start, you barrel through all these songs, you never, you never look back. It's nice to be an experience that really keeps you in the moment. 
A metaphor for life, if ever I've heard one. With sweet manna all around, 